That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Morning, Ben. Good to see you again. Um, how are you doing? Uh, not too bad at all. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you for listening and welcome back to That's Debatable. Uh, we have a special guest, don't we, Tom? We do. We, we uh, Fortunately, I think we've mentioned that uh, at the Free Speech Union, we're all dis- dis- spread around the, the country and we've just had one ghastly storm overnight so i was worried that lots of things would be blown away people's electricity would be down but we do in fact have our chief legal counsel bryn harris beaming in from the oxford area i think bryn but welcome good to see you thank you tom hi ben it's very good to be here i confirm i am all intact no pylons (laughs) down uh so it's good to be here yeah Garden furniture, okay, I hope, because I was moving my I was moving my balcony furniture down yesterday, tying it away. But uh, yeah, yeah, there could be some fallen gnomes out there, I suppose. But you know, it's, it's, that, that's the extent of the scathing, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> Acceptable losses. Um, exactly. If you're listening to this, you, you may well have seen Bryn on uh, TV or radio on Women's Hour quite recently about a case that we're going to come on and talk about. Um, and you may also, if you've contacted the Free Speech Union for help, have spoken to Bryn or one of his colleagues, one of my colleagues in the case team, um, for assistance. So that's a big part of what of what your job is, Bryn, isn't it? Is, is that frontline support to our members, members of the public who are in trouble? Yeah, that's right. So so I'm, I'm legal counsel and... Um, We've got a legal team of four now, uh, as well as <clears throat> a sort of panel of uh, friendly and very helpful lawyers. Um, and uh, you, you guys in casework are sort of the front line. Um, you know, so the first people that our members go to uh, when they're in trouble. Um, and, uh, you know, I, th- I think we've got a pretty good system going whereby um, you guys have a look at the case take it on and then if you think it's got a legal element uh run it by us to to see what to do and you know sometimes it'll just be a matter of answering a particular sort of limited query you've got about a case or it might be you know look this case is going to court so it, it's going to you know uh require the the full legal treatment so um we've got a pretty good sort of pipeline going i think you know with the way that that uh, the um, cases come to us and the way we we deal with them, um, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's one of the things I like most is that first point of contact with a member when they tell you what the problem is. You know that that's the, <clears throat> that's sort of for me the magical moment where you you hear their case, you hear their problem, and you've got to sort of construct the picture in your head get the narrative down as to what's happened and then start thinking, well, look, how, how might we turn this into um, a legal issue or, or well, not, not turn it into a legal issue? You know, how, how is the legal argument going to fit the, the matters of this case? What sort of claim is going to arise from this? What sort of strategy can we, can we build? And it's that 
it's that moment of uh, bricolage, as the French say, you know, of sort of putting it together. These are the elements, you know, and we can see, okay, we know this lawyer who, who would be very interested in this. Um, there's this recent case, whatever that was decided, we think that's going to be relevant. And that, that for me is the, um, those are the magic moments where it, where it comes together. Um, and, and, then, you know, and often it's when, when you do that and you think, goodness, this is, we've got a good case here. You know, this, this, this is, this is going to run, this has got legs. Um, so yeah, very, very much, uh, enjoy being at the front line. I just checked and we have 138 open cases on our system right now. And we've dealt with, I think, just north of 2,300 uh, in a little under four years. Yeah, well, I mean, that's um, that's not surprising. Uh, I mean, uh, sort of, that feels about right, given, given our general levels of um, uh, uh, busyness and uh, occasional exhaustion. So... Um, that that sort of uh, feels right. I mean, and the, the legal element of that is gen- generally about a quarter. Is is how it how it works? I'd say. So about about we would normally have a quarter of those cases being dealt with in in legal. Um, and they last longer, don't they, Bryn? As well, those legal cases as well. So you've got a, you've got a quarter, but they stay open for a long time, given how much there is to think about around them. Legally. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it does it does vary. Um, so, so some of the the cases on the legal docket will be um, fairly limited. You know, there's just a sort of uh, uh, limited role for the legal team to play. Maybe you know, reviewing something, <clears throat> uh, getting advice on a particular question. But then, as you say, Tom, uh, at the other end, it could be um, litigation that's going to last uh, for for years. Um, and that's um, I should point out that's not because. Um, not because we're lazy or we're uh, we're procrastinating. That, that's because when it when it goes to litigation, <laughs> you know you're you're on. It's, so it, in our case, it's normally the employment tribunal, uh, and you're on their timeline. The tribunal sets the uh, makes an order, given the directions as to say when when everything's going to happen, um, and so you know start to finish. Um, you know, could be two, three years. And then, of course, if you appeal, well, then goodness me, even longer. So um, quite, quite quite a varied sort of range of sort of chunky work and some, you know, more sort of granular stuff. So, Bryn, you're, you're a, I believe you are trained as a barrister. Um, how did you get into the orbit of the free speech union? What, what got you uh, hooked or involved, employed. Uh, how do you how do you get involved? Yeah, so that's right. So I, I am um, what the Bar Standards Board calls an unregistered barrister. Um, some people call that a non-practicing barrister, um, and that means that I've been called to the bar of England and Wales, uh, but don't hold a practicing certificate. Um, so in terms of how I how I sort of came to the uh, Free Speech Union, uh, I became uh, interested in, in free speech issues 
probably in late 2014, um, at the time of the Scottish referendum, uh, which was an issue that I was very uh, uh, engaged and passionate about having lived in Scotland. Um, and, you know, I sort of did my bit, you know, with sort of campaigning in, in Scotland. But uh, the free speech element came in because uh, the, 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 the nature of the debate online and also, frankly, um, on the streets of, of Edinburgh and Glasgow um, was um, in incredibly hostile, uh, angry, unproductive, um, and uh, just, just generally not, not really sort of fit for purpose for making a really important public decision. Uh, and I was quite um, alarmed and, and I sort of, you know, thought that, you know, th th this is no way for us to do our politics. It, it's almost impossible. Um, and so I became interested in um, sort of what could be done to support um, more meaningful civic dialogue. How do we encourage argument rather than um, mere invective and rhetoric? Um, you know, how do we encourage actual you know, proper participation and, um, and and sort of productive argument. So I became involved um, on the back of that with a, uh, a charity called Speakers Corner Trust, which um, uh, in the past has set up uh, Speakers Corners in different parts of England. And its main aim is to uh, encourage civic debate and uh, participation in the political process. Um, with with an emphasis on uh, on on to dialogue and and argument, um, that's not related to the famous Hyde Park corner speakers' corner, or is it, Brent? It's not. No, uh, as the the sort of um, bold lettering in red on the website uh, says, it's like, no, no, we're not connected to the Hyde Park uh, speakers' corner. Please don't. Uh, contact us about it, but obviously it was on that uh, it was on that model and it's on that ethos of uh, a public space in which people can come together to um, to put their uh, argument. Um, and uh, so over time, you know, I, I sort of did a number of projects there, I was working with a former uh, MP, Peter Bradley, who um, directed it, uh, and then over time, I I took over as director. Uh, and one thing that I was keen to do, uh, and this was getting towards 2017, 18, um, at, at that point it was becoming clear that um, sort of ground zero for the free speech issue in our country was uh, the, the university campus. Uh, it's fairly clear that there were some very important debates going on about free speech uh, and clear as well that there were certain threats to, to free speech in the university space. Um, so, um, I, I tried to convince the, uh, trustees that, that the charity needed to sort of pivot uh, and perhaps take a slightly more interventionist role, sort of how do we fight for free speech on campuses? Uh, probably didn't win that argument, uh, with the trustees, if I'm, if I'm honest. Um, but I did, I did take some, um, some steps towards, um, 
doing that. So I sort of put together a, a sort of uh, an incipient network of student free speech societies. Because, uh, well, I mean, I think, you know, you and Ben will know all about this, but there's lots of them out there often all doing different things, you know, so you might have like an atheists group and they tend to be interested in free speech. You might have a debating society. Uh, you might have like, you know, like a rationalist society. Um, and they've, they've, they've all, they've, they've all got an interest in free speech in some way, but all sort of, uh, you know, disconnected. Uh, and also as well, all tend to be quite transient because these student groups tend to sort of, uh, yeah, un unless they're really successful, uh, um, they'll tend to sort of disappear when people move on and, and leave university. So the aim, the aim was to sort of provide a degree of sort of solidarity between them and share best practice. Um, and also to, to create some structure that would help them, you know, survive and keep going. Um, so I sort of did some, some work on that. Um, and then eventually, um, <clears throat> you know, it became clear that, um, the, the work that I was doing, which is like evenings and weekends around my job, was 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 just a bit much. So eventually, I I sort of wound down my involvement, uh, and it's at that point. I've taken a long time to get here, but it was at that point <clears throat> that I read Toby Young's article. Um, I think it was in the Spectator, uh, saying I am setting up a free speech union. Uh, I think it was, wasn't it? End of nineteen. Yes, yes, I think it was, and and it was. You know, one of the most momentous bat signals in uh, in recent history, and he just Toby just said, "Look, I'm doing this," and he set up, you know, some of his ideas, some of which were quite similar to what I've been thinking of. The speakers come and trust, and then he just gave his email and said, "Look, if you've got any ideas, get in touch." And um, at the time, because I'd done this work with with speakers come and trust, and um, really I wanted to sort of to make sure someone could get some value out of it. It's just like, well, I've done a fair bit. I've got a fair bit of stuff in my hands. You know, I really now want to pass it on to another organization that can can make sure that work doesn't go to waste. Um, so I arranged to meet Toby, and I think I've sort of passed over what I'd done. And uh, I remember my wife at the time saying, uh, you're going you're gonna to get sucked into this, aren't you? You know, you're, you're going to get pulled in. And I'm saying, no, you know, no, I, I am just going to, hand over these documents and it'll be no more than that. Um, and uh, sure enough, um, I think probably a day or two after I'd met Toby, um, I think I got an email saying, um, just this case we've got, can I get your thoughts? And um, that, <laughs> that then put, pulled me in. And, and so for a while I um, sort of volunteered and just, you know, shared thoughts on, on stuff that Toby uh, put my way. Um, and then it's quite a while. So I think I, you know, first approached Toby in, as you say, late 2019, um, and FSU then, um, launches in, um, I should know this March, 2020. Or February. Was it February? <laughs> I think it was the second <laughs> half of February, 2020. Or thereabouts. <laughs> We'll cut that bit out. Um, FSU uh, launches, and then, and then I think sort of, you know, during that that period, I'm I'm doing this and that, but not not working for it. Uh, Toby did um, he did sort of rope me into 
to to argue for our trademark. So we tried to FSU had tried to trademark its its name, the Free Speech Union, and the uh, Intellectual Property Office had knocked them back and said, "Look, that's purely a descriptive, sort of transparent name. It's a general application. You, you know, you can't use it as a unique designator for." this product and this undertaking. Uh, so there's a bit of a problem. It's looking like the FSU wasn't going to have trademark protection. Uh, and so Toby sort of begged and pleaded that I would um, make the appeal. And I did explain many, many times that I'm not an IP lawyer. In fact, I wasn't a practicing lawyer. Um, uh, but eventually um, he did persuade me um, and I think, and I agree to do it, I think with, with an extraordinary list of caveats. Um, it's like, you know, look, you understand. Anyway, um, but I mean, against, against all the odds, uh, we won. And, um, uh, and so, I suppose that was probably my first sort of really substantive contribution um, to, to FSU. Um, and then when, when the, the role of chief legal counsel was created, um, uh, uh, Toby was, was sort of very insistent that I should apply for the role. Um, I mean, I, I was very much of the opinion that he, he would want someone of considerably greater seniority uh, than, than me. And so I, I, I sort of put it off. But then Toby kept on badgering me so much that it, uh, and this is honestly what happened, it, I, I felt it was rude not to apply. <laughs> uh, so I felt, I felt I had to put in an application just, just out of, out of politeness. Now, it, it wasn't that I didn't want the job. I very much did. Uh, but but I just thought, you know, look, that there's there's far more senior and, and better placed people uh, to apply. And then lo and behold, they, um, they they only went and hired me. And they've regretted it ever since. No, I, I don't think that's... No, it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> I, the, I remember the, the pace, um, I mean, it hasn't really lessened at all, but the pace was so frenetic. Um, still, when I was hired about a year after that, Bryn, that uh, Toby emailed me to offer me my job at about 2 a.m. in the morning on a Monday. Uh, so I woke, I woke <laughs> up on Monday morning, some very good news, handed in my notice. Because like, during that period, I'd been, I, I remember reading his article as well, uh, and I was working in uh, one of the colleges at Oxford University at the time. So I was watching the higher education system deteriorate and internally radicalize itself. Uh, and then, of course, 2020 hit. And uh, it, it was just absolutely accelerated beyond uh, what, what we'd seen already by that point. Um, and so, um, yeah, seeing that bat signal go up was very, very exciting. And I mean, not wanting to sound too much like we're patting ourselves on the back, but we've done a tremendous amount of work since then, um, just helping members. And, and we'll, yeah. we'll come on to talk about some of the uh, legislative stuff and the bigger strategic stuff that, that you're involved in as well. Um, yeah, gosh. No, I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, goodness, I, uh, like you say, don't want to pat ourselves on the back and also I don't want to be too sycophantic towards the, the boss. But I mean, I think when you when you look at the beginning with that that piece, Toby giving out his email and, and how it's grown and where it is, I mean, I, I think it is testimony to, to Toby's quite extraordinary Sort of energy and drive, I, and I think that you know that is what is has given it that propulsive momentum. Um, and um, 
you know, I, I, I think we're very fortunate because I think, you know, many, it, it's not easy, you know, being a startup's not easy. You know, we know that, goodness me, because we, 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 we were there as it was, as it was starting up. Um, and so it's, you know, we've, um, I'm really quite grateful that, that we've had a, you know, uh, such a good trajectory because it's, it's not easy. And many people, you know, um, through no fault of their own, you know, would struggle so uh... i think what you what you referred to there Bryn, when you said um you thought it ought to be someone more senior you didn't think you were necessarily the right person etc it's called imposter syndrome and i i think we all probably suffer a little bit of imposter syndrome i think if you if you don't suffer imposter syndrome you probably <laughs> should and if yeah. you do suffer from imposter syndrome, you probably shouldn't. But I think I think we've. <laughs> I would say I think the uh, particularly the last twelve twenty four months. I think the successes that we've had uh, bear testimony to to the fact that the power of the legal team, but also it's and it's it, you would be the first to say, Bryn, it's not just you. It's the lawyers and the legal advice that we're able to tap into, and we'll come on to some yeah. of. The, the solicitors firms and and the barristers in you know individual barristers that uh, stand by us um, through thick and thin and and through these cases um, but one of the interesting questions Ben and I before recording would were, were thinking about um, uh, what would what do we ask chief legal counsel uh, and one of the questions you're probably very good at coming up with questions I've got to say I spent uh, since for most of my life dealing with questions that you guys uh, come to me with. Yes, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, maybe, maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes we ask. One of the one of the questions is: You've been working obviously in the free speech world now for at least ten years. So you, you say you started in the uh, uh, thinking about the educational sector, the higher education sector. What would you, if you could, at a stroke, bring in a new law or? Um, uh, yeah, bringing a new piece of legislation relating to free speech. What would you choose to do legislatively to move in the United Kingdom to move free speech in the right direction? Well, it's a very good, um, a very good question, Tom. So um, I, I think, in terms of you know the sort of practically achievable tweak. That I, that I would make. So I'm going to answer this in two in, in two parts. First, you know, a sort of practical, achievable tweak, and then second, the uh, pie in the sky, pigs might fly, uh, sort of um, utopia uh, that, that we might drive towards. So I think that the practical tweak, uh, uh, I think, really um, would be an amendment to employment law, the Employment Rights Act. 1996, possibly as well, the Equality Act, uh, making plain that it's it's automatically unfair to dismiss an employee for uh, expressing uh, a lawful opinion or engaging in lawful free speech. And I, I think as well, I mean, there's it, it could be developed. And I, I think two particular things that, that we need to look at you know first of all the the law will look at the employment relationship and it will look at you know what what is what what is its reasonable and its agreed scope what does the employee agreed to do what are the 
instructions that reasonably fall within the employee's duties. And um, I think one thing that, that the law, either through its normal um, incremental development or through statute, what it needs to, to say is that uh, a, an instruction that employees comply with the values of the employer uh, is beyond the scope of the employment relationship. Uh, the, what the employer buys in the uh, uh, the labour, uh, uh, sorry, in in the employment relationship, what the em employer buys is the employee's time and the employee's labour, and there mustn't be exploitation of that re uh, relationship. Therefore, the employer can't be allowed to buy a window into the employee's soul. The employer doesn't buy the sort of you know, obedience to an ideological program. Uh, and I think the law has to be extremely careful that there isn't an abuse of power that because of the employer's economic power over the employee. They mustn't use that to say, well, look, now also we're going to we're going to buy your you know, obedience to our values. And I, I think that is you know, outside the scope of what your employer can reasonably ask of you. Uh, and as I say, I, th I think it's exploitative. To, to demand that. So I think, uh, and, and the reason that I say that, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of putting this in a fairly high level way. All three of us know very well how often an employer will cite as a reason to dismiss or to sanction or to investigate non-compliance yeah. with our values. It's very common to see that. Um, and, and, and it's, and it's, it's it's sort of um, bandied about rather casually, you know, with this expectation that one would expect the employee to uh, agree with our values. And obviously, in some values, that's that's fine. If your value is, you know, uh, we will provide a very high level service to our customers, fine. And obviously, you can have some organisations where a value is is important to it, you know, whatever we are, a, a Christian advocacy charity, you know, and that value is important, fine. But where you've got businesses that are taking very ideological, uh, ideologically charged stances on controversial issues, I think that's where it becomes extremely problematic for the employer to say you must comply with, with those values. So um, I think it needs to be plain that that's not within the scope of the employment relationship, uh, and it, it would be automatically unfair to dismiss uh, an employee for failing to comply with those values. And obviously, you, you're going to need, you know, exemptions. You always do. You know, fine. I, I think the the other problem uh, for me is that employers can be liable for for any breach of the Equality Act by their employees. So if, if, if one employee harasses another within the, the meaning of the Equality Act and you know, harasses creates a uh, you know, sort of degrading, humiliating, uh, offensive atmosphere, then the harassed employee can, can sue the employer. Now, the obvious uh, problem here is that it, it means that employers have got 
a, a very strong and legitimate interest in policing what their employees say and do. Because if you're going to be on the hook because your employee said something, then it necessitates having quite, um, you, know, you know, sort of strict, uh, comprehensive codes of conduct, sort of dignity work policies, as they're often called. And it, it means that your employer automatically has an interest in day-to-day -day interactions, just the way in which you speak to colleagues. Now, I think the, the problem with this uh, is that I don't think the law is there to, or should be there to, regulate our day-to-day -day interactions. I think the, the best use of the Equality Act is that it regulates abuse of power, abuse of decision-making power. If you have the decision whether to hire someone, sack someone, sanction someone, those are all decisions and they're taken, you know, wielding a decision-making power, using a process, and the law is, is properly placed to say, well, you, you must not misuse that power in order to discriminate someone or to treat someone badly you know, because of their, their race or sex or sexuality. That, for me, is the proper use of the law to regulate the uh, use of power and decision-making processes. Where the law starts to founder is when you say, we're going to use the law to regulate basic interactions between employees day to day, and we're going to work out what John said to Jill in the canteen. And there's, there's no, for a start, there's no decision-making process there. Um, but it's, it's also, I think we don't expect day-to-day -day interactions to fall within the remit of the law. If you're making a decision and you are a decision maker, then I think it's quite right that the law applies quite formally in, you know, in its artificial technical way that applies to a decision making process. When we start uh, acting on the basis that our day-to-day, -day, you know, informal speech is regulated uh that i think is uh, is where we we start to have problems uh, and i won't I probably won't belabor the point um I, I i don't think the law is a good way of getting people to act and speak uh in a moral and fair way i, I think it's an it's an entirely inadequate tool for that um so, um, you, you know, I think that's one thing that, that we need to do. Now, obviously, if, if employers ha are and should be under a duty not to discriminate against and harass their employees, then I think it does follow from that that they've got to take some steps to say, and we're going to make sure that our workforce don't discriminate against each other and harass each other. You know, I think, I think there's got to be some sort of mechanism for making sure that your workforce doesn't become, you know, an absolute morass where people are, you know, sort of, you know, uh, uh, racially abusing each other, treating each, each other unfairly. So I think there needs to be some duty on employers that says, look, you're going to take steps to make sure that, you know, you've got you've got a minimally fair, decent 
set up where people aren't, you know, employee, employee A isn't going to mistreat employee B. But I think what we've got at the moment that says everything your em- employees do is on you. It's as if you did it, but more or less. I mean, there, there, there are, again, slight nuances to the test. I, you know, I, I think that's that, that's really far too excessive and it results in all of us being scrutinised in what we say by the law, which um, I think in free countries, um, that's not what happens. Your day-to-day interactions aren't the uh, in, in the scope of law. So that, that's probably... Um, those two particular things. I did say I was going to do a big pie in the sky one. I don't know if we've got time for yeah, that. Yeah, go on, Brim. Go on. Okay, goodness. Um, I, I think the, the 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 pie in the sky, uh, I, I think, would be to... Uh, I'm not going to say a British First Amendment, but I think the aim would be for Parliament to take its stance on how to protect free speech within the country. What we have at the moment is that Parliament doesn't really do much about free speech and indeed about many human rights because it, it, it's almost done the human the, the the operation of the human rights act is essentially to leave it to the courts to read it in um it, it there, there's this sort of outsourcing under the human rights act um that says well look you know ev- everything's got to be read compliantly with the convention and so it's sort of it, it sort of cut Parliament a bit of slack. You know, it means that Parliament doesn't need to necessarily think about, about free speech uh, because it's, you know, it's now in the remit of the courts uh, and of the European Court of Human Rights in, in Strasbourg. So I, I think a pie in the sky um, piece of legislation for me would be um, take, Parliament taking back that duty and and legislating quite clearly across across a range of duties defamation employment um equality law data law privacy um and really thinking what do we need to say explicitly to protect free speech we're not not just going to say it's someone else's job you know parliament's going to say it's there in our law um and i I think that i mean that that would be a a huge job um but I i think really parliament accepting something that our elected lawmakers have to argue about they, they have to have you know open you know exploratory imaginative deliberation it's extremely important and it's something they've got to be thinking about you know in public on our behalf one of the things that struck me during um your first answer about the tweak you would make is there was almost nothing you said i think that would not have been said by a 19th century trade unionist um, it all sounds very left-wing. And despite the vituperative reaction to the foundation of the Free Speech Union back in 2020 and the idea that it was, it was some sort of right-wing front organisation for something terribly nefarious, actually every, everything you're talking about, everything we're thinking about day-to-day is about protecting employees from exploitation and abuse by employers. It's about limiting the power of decision-makers. It's all very traditionally left-wing stuff if you couch it in those terms. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, it, it's intensely regrettable that something that is a a basic civic value, uh, something that's of equal value to everyone and of equal usefulness to everyone, i.e. free speech, and then obviously something that's a universal human right. I mean, it, it, it's intensely disappointing um, that it has been um, miscast as 
uh, a a sort of political wedge point between right and left. And, you know, obviously there have been, um, there's been some success in, in, in sort of overcoming this false culture war distinction, uh, you know, where, where those, um, those on both sides have realized, well, actually, no, there's a great commonality here. You know, what, what, why would we say that free speech is, is, is an interest for them and not for us? And, and obviously the first major sort of, um, you know, breach of the barricades was with the gender critical feminists, sort of many of whom are on the left, um, and and you know who, with whom now I think you know we make very common cause. People on the right make very common cause, um, and so I think I think that's you know an example of how the, the this sort of false um, dichotomy can be can be overcome. But again, going back to what you were saying, Ben, I think there are other, you know, other uh, opportunities for us to show that the universal nature of freedom of speech, and I think one is protection of workers from exploitation. You know, from the bosses. This is what this is. You know, this is the boss class. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it, it, it's so foundational, Bryn. I mean, Ben quite rightly says we could be talking about you know the the the, the workers' movement from a hundred years ago when you were talking. I could have there were moments that flashed into my head that reminded me of serfdom. We go back to the Middle Ages, you know, the post the Norman Conquest, serfdom, where you are essentially owned <laughs> by the Lord of the Manor and everything about you is owned. And elements of that came into my mind when you were talking. And then when you were talking about um, the, the sort of pie-in-the-sky legal wish list, uh, being uh, not a First Amendment, but at least Parliament taking control again of <laughs> or not seeding out. I, I thought I could be listening to Oliver Cromwell, you know, saying Parliament first, Parliament but in first. A good way, in a good way, right? <laughs> in a good yeah, I'm, not, I'm hoping you're not going to ban Christmas, you're not going to ban dancing. Um, I love the fact that we have both King Charles I and we have Oliver Cromwell as statues outside Parliament, the idea that we can hold these things in tension yeah, yeah. <laughs> without losing our heads. I mean, it, it, um, it is extraordinary when you uh, when you look at the rhetoric of, um, sort of, you know, Cromwell, um, the the parliamentarians, John Milton. I mean, it's 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 intensely similar to the sort of libertarian radicalism that would found America. Um, mm. You know, very similar indeed. Uh, and indeed, you know, Cromwell, you know, did consider um, uh, moving uh, to America before the, the Civil War. And it's it, it is almost like a sort of a lost radicalism in our in our past. You know, and I think um, uh, I, I think it's something we need to, to sort of you know rediscover, um, and and you know I think that is that is going on. You know, I, I think we've got these sort of quite interesting sort of dynamics at the moment. Like, who are the rebels here? Who are the punks? And who are the conformists? You know, and it's quite um, it, it, it it's quite difficult because I think that, you know very often those who would say that they are the you know. Uh, progressives, the you know the opponents of the powerful. Well, I think you know sometimes for us they seem pretty powerful. They're, you know they're they're making de making decisions, often quite quite sort of oppressive decisions. Um, and so you know I just think there's there's a sort of um, sort of 
timeless um, sort of radicalism uh, in in our political culture that I think we need to we, we need to re-embrace. The flip side of that, I suppose, would be the um, the Tom Holland argument that that woke is a is a Protestant heresy, and that it that, that woke is a is an end product of those traditions that go back to the English Civil War or civil wars. Um, so I, I, it's interesting you can you can trace those lines all the way through to our politics now, but come to quite different conclusions. I think because you can, you, as you were just saying, you can cast the royalists and the parliamentarians. Um, there, are, there are elements of them that fit on each side of the culture war. I would suggest. Um, yeah. Anyway. We 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 could yeah. get, we could get we could get lost in the English Civil War for quite some time between the three of us. This is such an interesting <laughs> conversation, isn't it, Ben? We, we're going to need a, we're going to need another episode to 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 have Brit expand on this. But we we, yes. we should probably move on to to one of our cases, shouldn't we, Ben? Yeah. Do you want to, do you yeah, want to introduce? Sure. It? So this is something. Um, actually, got lots of the work uh, we're doing is it concerns people who are on the on the wrong side of the culture war in their particular university or workplace or whatever um so that there's a strong theme of that through our work in the last four years just given the free speech climate that we're dealing with at the moment but the case we want to talk about now uh, that Bryn, you've been heavily involved in um has no culture war connection whatsoever um, and it's the case of signature clinic um so Bryn, do you want to introduce that and explain what on earth is going on and uh, how we became involved in it. Yeah, so um, Signature Clinic is a, uh, a private, uh, I think mainly, uh, solely or mainly cosmetic surgery clinic with a number of clinics across the country, I think around eight. And we first um, heard of it when um, uh, someone came to us, uh, now a member came to us and said, look, I'm uh, I'm being sued in uh, defamation because I posted an online review uh, about surgery that I had found unsatisfactory. Uh, and so we, we got talking to this member and um, he, the claim had actually gone forward. So, was, you know, being sued in the high court for defamation, terrifying experience for anyone, for hardened journalists, never mind people posting online reviews. Uh, and we saw that the there were in fact eight people being sued for comments about Signature Clinic, uh, all on I believe the same review website. So it's clear that there was something going on. Now the the the, the head of the uh, media and communications list had uh, grouped all of the claims together. So Mr. Justice Nicklin had realised there was some there was. Well, there was commonality that, you know, the, these claims hung together. Possible as well that, that he saw that there was something going on that he wanted to keep a close eye on. So from, from there, when we saw this list of, of eight defendants, we then started getting in touch with them um, to see if we could uh, coordinate getting joint representation uh, for all of the defendants. And it's obviously... Uh, importantly, cheaper um, if you've got one claim, uh, one firm, sort of you know d doing the work for all eight, eight defendants, and it gives you a certain strength in numbers. So um, we 
two of the eight have, have, have actually settled, but um, we are representing, let me think, was it? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I've got to get my numbers right. We're representing four people who are being sued in defamation, and there are two people facing injunctions for alleged harassment. So not, not Equality Act harassment, this is sort of stalking style harassment, sort of, you know, targeted, oppressive and unreasonable behaviour repeated, which which constitutes harassment. So the, the, the allegation was that when you said something disobliging about our company on Facebook, that was harassment. So quite, quite an unusual claim to make. Um, so we, we managed to uh, to get representation um, for uh, is all six people that we're we're helping um, from uh, media uh, for oh, uh, a law firm RPC which has got a very strong specialism in uh, defamation defense and has been involved um, with some some leading cases uh, and they've been doing a, a, a really superb job. Um, in getting this defence on the road, uh, and you know, really going on on the front foot to help these uh, these people uh, fight back against this claim. But there's <clears throat> there's there's an important element, um, a really important element here, which is not just the um, the nature of the claim, the actual legal claim that these people are facing, uh, but also the way in which it's being conducted, um, which which we say in terms of the way that you know the, the the other side's lawyer is communicating with them and has been talking to them. You know, we say that that, that has been done in a in a highly threatening and aggressive way, which, which is entirely inappropriate. Um, so, just on the um, looking first at the the sort of substance of the of the claim, and if, if we just stick to the the defamation, you know, to, to bring, a, um, for a company to bring a defamation claim, not a, not a natural person, but a company, a legal person, you've got to show that it's caused you serious financial loss. Now, um, there's obviously a bit of a bit of a question mark there as to whether an individual posting an online review can really uh, cause serious financial loss. Um, I mean, it strikes me that um, that our members would be somewhat surprised if someone told them you wield such great power at the keyboard that one mere review <laughs> is going to cause serious financial loss. Uh, and obviously, you know, if, if online reviews did cause serious financial loss, um, you know, you'd imagine companies would be going out of business pretty quickly left right and center so there's there's a real question mark um over that um and then obviously um the the defenses of of truth uh come in but also of public interest and i think that's the that's the real free speech thing i think that that, that we're interested in it's plainly in the public interest if consumers can make informed decisions and if consumers can communicate their experiences to others like we all benefit from there being a range of opinions and it's it, it, i think it's pretty damaging if if the law can be used to 
intimidate people from giving their honest opinions so as to help others make informed uh, choices. So there's there's a number of uh, uh, um, question marks over the claim, and obviously it'll be for the court to decide that. Um, the second element that I brought up was the um, the way in which this claim has been brought against our members. Um, and I'm sure um, you and many of our listeners have heard of uh, what is known as a, a SLAP, um, which is strategic litigation against public participation. So just speaking generally, um, this is where um, a claimant um, instructs lawyers to um, initiate uh, usually defamation litigation can, can be other forms, you know, meet, uh, privacy, for instance, um, in a highly aggressive way, um, which is likely to make it difficult for the other side simply to keep up, i.e. they'll be, they'll be costed out. Simply, you know, paying a lawyer to keep up with the correspondence, to keep up with the pre-action, you know, it's exhausting, um, it's expensive, it's extremely stressful and worrying. And a lot of the time, it's simpler just to give in and to say, okay, okay, I won't participate publicly. I will remove my my article, my book, this comment, whatever. So that that is, this is the practice mm. that, that regulators and many, many lawyers, many lawmakers are worried about, that the defamation law can be used to dissuade people from making public comment now and it is a very expensive form of lawsuit as well defamation claims i think are right at one end of the scale aren't they Bryn, in terms of defending uh against them or, or as you say hiring lawyers it the the bills rack up extremely yeah absolutely quickly. yeah be, um, because you know you, you you do need um to, to instruct lawyers who know what they're doing um, there's obviously um, a, a lot of sort of pre-trial work to do. Um, and, you know, this I think is one of the really um, difficult things to, to get your head around, even when a claim is, is sort of manifestly without merit or, or, or is, you know, it's cl clearly designed simply to intimidate and doesn't have any real legal substance um which which certainly we say is the case with the signature claims again it's for the court to decide but that's that's our, our honest view of it um when you have that situation you tend to sort of think well look you know we've got good judges in this country you know we've got high court judges and, you know these extremely able this will this will get struck out you know It'll, it, it's as simple as that. You just point out to the court, well, look, there's nothing to this, you know, and, and so the claim should be struck out. In fact, you know, it's very difficult to get to that uh, uh, point where you're going to be able to persuade a judge, get rid of that, which, you know, and it, it, that itself is for fair reasons. People have a right of access to the courts and judges should be slow to say, we're not going to allow you to bring a claim. And so you know, even getting to the point where, where you can 
you know, just, just have this chucked out is enormously stressful, enormously expensive. Um, and, you know, you, you can see why many people would say, look, I'm just going to, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. bite the bullet, I'll pay the costs, I'll delete the comment, uh, etc. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, because in this case, you know, there are questions about the merits of the claim being brought. When you look at the other hand, or, or, uh, uh, at the extremely, uh, we say, the extremely aggressive way in which the claim is being brought. So we're talking about letters to unrepresented claimants, people without, sorry, un unrepresented defendants, people without a lawyer, threatening prison, saying, you know, look, we'll get, we're going to get an order. And if you, you know, if you don't comply, you're going to go to prison, sort of threatening them with, with, um, you know, uh, uh, baleful financial consequences, um, making, you know, really extremely hostile accusations against them. I mean, this is um, litigation conducted, we say, in an inordinately aggressive, hostile, <clears throat> threatening manner. Um, and when you compare, on the one hand, the, the contestable merits with, on the other hand, the extremely aggressive way in which it's being pursued, one can infer, and, and, and we do, that this isn't really about defending any proper arguable claim in law. It's more about intimidation, threatening, getting people to shut up, uh, is what we say. On, on the point of, um, of expense, we should say as well that we do have a crowdfunder that people can donate to. Uh, what, what's the deadline for that, Bryn? So the deadline uh, for our crowdfunder, so it's a crowd justice um, crowdfunder, and um, the deadline for that is, I think, the um, 3rd or 4th of February. And um, that is, uh, it's going well, but um, we really do value any contribution that people can make. And I, I just want to really bring home how extraordinarily um, stressful and damaging it is to face a high court claim because you can't you can't simply walk away from it you can't say okay you know this is nonsense I don't want it because potentially the other side can get an order against you and it can be enforced you're just sort of sucked in to this madness where you're worrying all the time that your house is going to be under threat. Um, and, you know, th this is stuff that, you know, hardened journalists, you know, who, who you know, look into things like corruption in Russia and, and, and Putin's cronyism, you know, they face these things and, and it's debilitating for them. And we're talking about, and also that, you know, those people were backed up normally by a legal department. You know, if you're a journalist, you've got a legal team behind you at the newspaper. We're talking about, people doing something completely every day, just leaving an on online review, no expectation at all that this ever would have legal consequences. Um, and also as well, you know, leaving a review about something that, that was already quite a sensitive, difficult matter, you know, it's about surgery they'd had to change their appearance. Maybe there was something that, 
that they were unhappy with. And and so for them to be suddenly, you know, sucked into this extremely aggressive worrying litigation, you know, it shouldn't be happening. This should not be happening to them. It it is unacceptable. And, you know, we want people to donate to to recognize that, to say, you know, to agree, yes, this should not be happening. And we need to send a very clear sign that consumers posting online reviews, honest online reviews, is completely acceptable. It's something we all benefit from. And this must not be sort of sucked in to this uh, uh, sort of lawfare um, culture. It really needs to be, there needs to be a degree of protection. Um, and so, you know, that's why, you know, if you agree with that, we do ask you to to donate. It, it is expensive to defend um, a defamation claim. We're not, you know, we're not chucking money at lawyers here. The, the lawyers here are, are are being extremely helpful in doing what they can with the the um, the fees that can be raised. So there's there's no question that this is, you know, going to towards paying you know, lawyers' banquets or anything like that, you know, but this is being done really on a shoestring. So, um, yeah, great cause, so please do donate. And it is a frightening case, Bryn. Um, you know, I think the idea that when you, you, you go on to a review website, you, in good faith, you write your review, and then you have this happen, uh, which has financial consequences. It has uh, consequences for your your well being, how you feel about everything, uh, because everything's under attack. It re- reminded me very much of how this seems to happen with the free speech world at the moment. In in a number mm-hmm. of areas, we've seen the debanking yeah. come out of nowhere. Now we've got people writing reviews in good faith, and we've got that come out of nowhere. Um, and it's almost a feature now that these whole new areas of potential free speech threat are, are coming out of nowhere. So, yeah, do do contribute to that crowdfunder. Um, this is an extremely um, important case, uh, and it certainly will help as well to, I think, set a... Um, a reset the framework within which people are writing reviews and 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 can point at the case and say look we are allowed to write our reviews we are operating in good faith and we, you know, we, we do want that. the the high court to see what's going on and to to register um it, it's it's projection of, of this use of um uh, 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 defamation law and i think as well uh, and this is something we're active at doing this is also a regulatory matter, you know, solicitors are under ethical duties. We think there's a serious question, very, very serious question as to whether those duties have been complied with. So, you know, the Solicitors Regulation Authority needs to look into this. These clinics have already been investigated by the Care Quality Commission. Three of them have been rated inadequate. So, you know, I, I think we need to lay down a real marker here that this is unacceptable. And we need to, what we're working on doing is getting as many voices, powerful voices in to, to scrutinize this and to say no, you know. It's, if, if, you are, if you are having problems in providing your, your service and that can happen, the response to it is not to sue anyone who complains about it. Well, I think that probably brings us to the end. Uh, we're out of time, but 
Bryn, thank you so much for joining us. That was really interesting. And I should say, we speak to Bryn most days. And Tom and I, I think I can say for both of us, we still found that really interesting. Uh, so Bryn, thank you for your time. It, it was a pleasure. Um, and please do uh, look at the crowdfunder and donate if you can. We'll include that in the episode description so you can find the link. Um, so I think that's goodbye from me. Thank you for listening. <laughs>